Good day to you, my name is Ragnel Wesenberg and here is episode 42 of the Musician's Journey podcast and another episode where I talk to a musician for a free consultation. It's produced by me and therefore the audio quality varies quite a bit from time to time <clears throat> but I make an effort to not hurt your ears. If that's happening anyway, feel free to write me an email the address is in the show notes, and so is the link to my page on Coffee if you would like to support this podcast. If you're looking for new musical input, I can recommend the playlist, also called The Musician's Journey Podcast, which you can find on Spotify and which consists of music by some of the guests here, and therefore very varied, anything from singer-songwriter to contemporary classical and rock, but for the time being there is not any reggae or country or dubstep or psytrance. Uh, today I am happy to share the conversation I had with the cellist, producer, arranger, instrument collector and fellow Stockholm resident Erik Hamrefors. The music in this episode is from a performance of Carl Jenkins' Requiem with the choir Oskars Motetka, the orchestra orchestern filialen and with Eric on the cello. start I'm just really happy to finally have a freelance cellist in Stockholm here because that's what I'm trying to be as well I see yeah (laughs) and I've been talking to people who do all kinds of things in all kinds of places so now finally I can uh, I can dig into how it's like here and how you got into the things you are doing Uh, but do you want to introduce yourself first Uh, yes well my name is Erik Hammerfors and uh, I am maybe not a entirely representative of the, um, the freelance <laughs> community here in Stockholm because I do have a day job, so to speak, as a producer and I'm employed at the uh, Swedish Performing Arts Agency or uh, Musikverket, Statens Musikverk, uh, here in Stockholm. And um, it's a, a government agency, so I work for our uh, small state-owned record label uh, Caprice Record as a producer primarily and uh, my freelance work is sort of on the side of this and I've mm. been very fortunate in being able to to grow that that part of uh, of the business on the side. It sounds like a balancing act because being a cellist on the because you're you're playing at a professional level you get the I saw you recently played in the Eurovision uh, some yes, I did. here in, in, in uh, Sweden. Melody Festivalen, yes. Yeah, and as a, is that called session musician when that type of gig? Um, no, it's not. I really. would associate that term with studio uh, performance right. uh, more, which I yes. also do. Uh, yeah. 
at times. But um, this was uh, this was more of just a fluke, really, where I was uh, engaged uh, by one of the violinists to uh, to join the project, and um, it was great fun. <laughs> it yeah. was one of the most fun things I've ever done behind the cello and I wasn't even heard because everything as many know in Eurovision the, the rules stipulate that everything instrumental is always playback. Oh. Uh, and all the vocal stuff must always be live so as I understand. Right. Okay. So, uh, wow. I so, so I wasn't heard no. even though you saw me and we did play. <laughs> yeah. For real. We didn't uh, play uh, with the Air lubricated bows or something like that, but no. we um, we had no microphones or anything, so n- nothing came into the ah, to the live sound. Okay, I wasn't even aware of that. But even so, it was yeah. one of the most fun things I've ever done because it was a very, I mean, it's a huge production. It's um, there's so many people involved and so much technique and everything is so highly organized and. Um, and it's just uh, fascinating to be part of such a such a well-oiled machine as yeah. uh, Melody Festival is, because it's uh, the the concept of the whole production has been fine-tuned for decades. So yeah. they, everyone knows their places, everyone knows where to go when, and everything's very um, organized. And yet, it's it's very nice. Everyone are very happy and mm. nice to each other, and everything is just. Not laid back, but it's uh, it's a comfortable atmosphere. That's a very uh, big contrast to how it's sometimes done in the performing business. Okay. <laughs> so I'm still sort of. It's been a couple of weeks now, but I'm still riding a bit on the high <laughs> from that. Yes. So you are, you know, playing at the professional level, and at the same time, this is not your what you call your main job. No, my main job since quite a few years now is uh, as a uh, producer or executive producer uh, specifically now. I started out already in, um, before even finishing uh, my studies, I started uh, working for a digital music company uh, called X5 Music Group. Uh, and they started in 2005 or six or something like that and I joined in late 2007. And they were specialized in, they are specialized in uh, digital music distribution and uh, digital music production. So I start, I joined them very early on as a producer, mainly in classical music, uh, because they had a very exciting business model for the time where they uh, bought up and they licensed catalogs uh, from various record companies and they made new products from uh, from their recordings, made specifically for the digital market. Mm. And this was at the very height of the, it was the death of the CD era and it was the very short-lived height of the download era where, mm. where iTunes and Amazon and those large uh, download services were reigning supreme. And I worked there for six years, I think, until 2013. And then I hopped over to Caprice Records, where I am now. So I've been at Caprice Records for eight years now, which is crazy. But mm. eight years have gone by, and it's yeah. still very, very much fun. Yeah. But it's a very different uh, experience working for a much smaller, state-owned, tr- more traditional record company, but traditional in the sense that the production is run in a more traditional way, but 
there's still been a, a process of evolution and um, renewal, even for Capri. So it's been very exciting to take part in. So I guess this interest in production was something that you had, obviously, before getting into this as a profession. But how, when does that happen? Because when I was studying music, and I, I suppose you were also studying cello playing, there was, I wasn't really aware of other things existing. How did, how did this interest in production come to you? It sort of came with the job, really. Um... Actually joining uh, XY Music Group and, and just finding out about that, that, that position um, was more of a fluke than anything. And I, I uh, went to the interview and we talked a lot about uh, classical music and, um, and music production and stuff like that. And I had many ideas and I had some visions uh, because I, I sensed that this was a, a new aspect of the music business and that was surely going to grow into something viable for the future. So I had lots of ideas and I was young and reckless and mm. experimentative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I joined that company and uh, it was great fun and I very much liked it and we had some rather big successes. I think if you check the US iTunes classical charts, uh, some of my products are still on the top ten, <laughs> mm. uh, on the top list there. So we had some some really great releases, and uh, that sort of cemented my path uh, for the time being. So mm. it came it came with the job, the, the interest in production, and then okay. uh, as I mentioned before, I'm not entirely uh, a studio producer like that. I'm I'm working mostly on the sort of conceptual executive level mm. of producing where. Um, where you sort of manage a production and you manage the, the conceptual work and uh, release and uh, hmm. making everything come together. Right. Can you uh, break it down a little bit more, what this job consists of for you? Like how does a work day look like? Well, it differs very much. There are many aspects. So I, I recently, together with my husband, we, we made this... Uh, production tool just to aid <laughs> to aid me in um, in sort of codifying my uh, my workflow so i have this new tool that i that i'm starting to use now where where every step of a production is sort of uh, listed and we have the lists of statuses and uh, descriptive boxes and stuff like that um, and that's sort of made me also realize that how <laughs> many different steps there are mm -hmm. and they they don't always come in the same order so mm -hmm. um, it depends uh, very much on what format we're releasing an album in or what uh, uh, multiple formats uh, and uh, also if it's a new production if it's a re-release of a previous recording if it's a compilation which is a lot of what I do as well um, Right now we're working quite a lot with a, a new production, a deb debut album of a um, folk music group that we've engaged, and uh, it's more of a traditional executive producer role that I've taken on for that and for several other albums, where you sort of manage, <laughs> mm. manage the, the production until release. 
that's a totally different world to me. Yes, it's so. it's uh, it's very different. Um, it's a sort of behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at everything because it's always um, every every album you see released is always uh, preceded by a, a long production period, and there it can be months or even years for some uh, more advanced concepts to arrive in their final shape. Yeah. So if, if anyone is listening to this and they're thinking about maybe getting into this as well, what would you say are the skills that a producer should have? Well, I don't know if I possess them all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, was never, I was never educated uh, in uh, music production, per se. I sort of uh, slid into it uh, and... Uh, and I've specialized uh, by working really in the field, and so I have a, I have a, some field knowledge. Yeah. Um, I mean, you definitely have to have a good background knowledge of the music you're working with. I think, like the type of the yeah, genre, I, the genre, the style. Uh, it it really helps if you know how, at least at a rudimentary level, how. The, the instruments involved work, how, uh, mm. what are technical limitations both for the musicians and for the technicians. And you also, I mean, you also need good social skills. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's an important part, maybe more important than, uh, than for my performing side as a musician. You need to be able to communicate, communicate clearly. Kind of ironic that I couldn't say that word clearly. <laughs> But you need to be able to communicate clearly yeah. <laughs> your your intentions and your your vision for the production and uh, mm. uh, both at a sort of um, overarching level and at a more detailed um, and at the de- details and right since you went into production, does that mean you didn't want to be a cellist full time? Oh, I did desperately want to be a cellist full-time. Right. Uh, that was sort of my my goal, mm. certainly. Um, like an orchestra or a, a soloist or a teacher or a... Did I you think have I, had, I think my vision from the start, which also sort of evolved, especially during my high school education, the, the, the vision was very clearly that I wanted to um, develop a... Uh, combination of uh, soloist and chamber musician career. Yeah. But it was so early on that I, as I said, I slid into this <laughs> production field uh, and um, had such uh, uh, great early successes in it, so it, um, mm. it sort of dissipated after a while. Yeah. But uh, after a few years in the production um, business, and I did take up uh, freelancing, at least on the side, doing... Uh, I mean, mm. lots of wedding gigs, funerals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how did baptisms, you? Some concerts. I joined uh, yeah. a few ensembles, and uh, I, I've also, during my whole career, I've also played uh, a bit on the side because I'm I'm not just cellist. I play uh, the double bass or the violin and viola as well, mm. but more on an amateur level. So I played with amateur orchestras and stuff like that, mm. primarily with uh, on uh, on the double bass. Mm. Yes. 
how did you get into uh, you know funerals and weddings and I because it must be very important to know people right yes and that most of that I definitely have my good friend Isabel Isabel Ander yeah. uh, who's a professional violinist and full-time freelance violinist uh, mm. I have her to thank for <laughs> getting me into that we uh, went to high school together yeah and um, she she took up a freelance career uh, immediately after finishing her education and uh, sort of took me under her wings and uh, <laughs> we formed uh, early on we formed a duet violin duet duet um, and uh, we've done I don't know how many primarily weddings and it's been great fun mm. so, um, I enjoyed it very much so what would you do if uh if you're in a city and you don't know other musicians and you want to get into this, do you feel from your experience that there is room for more musicians in this pool of string players? I think so. I mean, it always helps to to organize these um, these kinds of things. Uh, I'm part of a, of a sort of, what would you call it, a, a freelance pool of musicians called Stråkapellet. Yes. I contacted them actually about a year ago, but of course then it was pandemic and not much happening. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So, but yeah. And through through that, you gain a lot of contacts, and mm. um, and uh, I mean, otherwise it's just uh, a matter of uh, accepting gigs and working, and then you learn to know people, and you. Mm. I I've built it up very slowly, because mainly because I haven't had to stress about it because I've always had my day job. Mm. Uh, so uh, it's it's been a very slow process for me, but uh, it's been rewarding. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you set your prices? Like how much to take for a wedding gig, for example? I usually go by since I've uh, sort of come back to this from um, working with other musicians. I usually go by <laughs> what my colleagues yeah. uh, are doing. Um, yeah. I mean, we have a sort of minimum level, and then it's always—I um, mean, it's always a matter of um, negotiation between both parties. So it depends on how much um, arranging or how much rehearsals and uh, mm. uh, isn't necessary to to make a as good a performance as possible. I mean, sometimes it can be hard to <laughs> convince <laughs> the employers, so to say, to. To convince them of the the amount of work mm. that is required, um, but most often it's uh, negotiated right. until everyone is satisfied. Yeah, because it doesn't happen often that for a wedding they want something really challenging to play. No, so it, sometimes really? <laughs> it can be surprisingly. But it, I'm I'm also besides being a musician and and producer, I'm also a uh, an occasional arranger, music yeah. arranger, and I've, I've done quite a few string arrangements and uh, stuff like that. And also for wedding gigs you often have to do some arranging because it's more and more common that they want uh, pop music and, uh, right. and crossover tunes. Yeah. Um, and especially for me and Isabel with our duo, uh, we have uh, limited material to work with. Mm. Uh, so. You can sometimes find ready-made quartet arrangements and stuff like that, but for just for violin and cello, then you often have to mm. 
really get into the nitty-gritty and arrange something to sound as good as possible. So musical reduction has become my specialty. Yes. <laughs> uh, certainly. Uh, and that can also sometimes result in quite challenging right <laughs> because you want to cover uh... you want to cover a lot of uh, a, a lot of harmonic content on yeah. just eight strings um, yeah. uh, with a limited range so it, it can sometimes be uh, more challenging than uh, i would wish but mm. i also have i also have a tendency to arrange after what is possible to play not ex- necessarily what is comfortable or easy <laughs> to mm. play on the cello business I'm sure there are plenty of string duos who are in similar situations and who would I mean do you have your arrangements online somewhere that no, people can purchase yet not yet um, but that could be perhaps something to think about but um, mm. not yet as you say the, there is probably a, a demand for it but uh, We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see if I if I dare publish <laughs> some of them. I have some arrangements available on like IMSLP yeah. um, that I've just done just for fun. I I made an edition of uh, of an Italian Baroque composer uh, Giuseppe Dallabacco, uh, his Caprices for Solo Cello, for instance. That I, I made my own edition of and and uh, just published on IMSLP. How did you change it from the original? I had this um, edition that I bought uh, in Italy. That's a common published uh, edition. I can't remember the publisher now, what they were called. But it's one of, I think it's one of the few public, like printed editions there is of the uh, of the Eleven Caprices. And uh, it's such a marvelous work. And this particular edition that I bought, they had taken a lot of liberties in uh, editing compared to the original manuscript, which was also included in the edition. Mm. Uh, so I was inspired to make a, uh, a, a printed edition that was uh, more definitely more closely resembling the manuscript. Mm. The manuscript, however, is rife with inaccuracies and obvious uh, misspellings and, and, uh, mm. okay. and uh, faulty writing. So some things you have to take with, with, uh, with huh. some grains of salt, which is probably why this uh, this publisher had uh, taken such great liberties in their own edition. Mm. But I wanted to, at least, where there was no real reason to, uh, to, to change things, I wanted to stick more closely to the manuscript. I haven't even heard of those uh, capricious. Oh, I will, a um, it's I a will check them book. out. It is one of the, uh, what should you say, an, an undiscovered jewel yeah. of, of Baroque cello music. <laughs> Uh, I think the first Caprice in C minor is 
quite commonly performed. Not, I mean, it's not the Bach suites, but it's um, you can hear it uh, at times. Um, but there are ten more, and they are mostly beautifully written. Mm. Um, and I mean, he Giuseppe Tallabacco was not really a very famous composer in his time. In his time. Um, but he did travel around and he was a, a sought-after cellist, uh, as far as I remember. And uh, But I, th I think his work suffered from it being uh, written... I mean, he was writing in a very conservative style for his time. He was late 18th century, really, but he wrote in a sort of more earlier 18th century style. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think he mostly just wrote for himself and maybe for his friends. and. Uh, it never rose to the prominence of many of his uh, compatriots. Right. At that. Uh, but it's it's beautiful music. It's really worth looking into. Yeah. And I can recommend looking at my edition yes. on IMSLP. Yes. It's freely available. A <laughs> <laughs> link to that. I will. Um, I will look into that because these days, I mean, I'm I'm trying to get more work. I mean, these days it's mainly teaching, private teaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's going better. But I nevertheless have uh, spare time in my days, so I I started renting a practice room close by. Okay. So I go there uh, often, and then you know I maintain technique and try to develop it. And uh, I really, really like uh, studies and attitudes, and I guess capricious is. Is it in the same area, or are they more for performing? Something I mean, they are performance hard. pieces. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the most famous example, of course, being Paganini's yeah. twenty-four violin caprices, uh, certainly written for performance. But I mean, they uh, they work fabulously well as technical exercises. Mm. Um, they display a. Uh, varying degree of difficulty. It's, an, it's not like the, the first one is the easiest and the last one is the hardest, but, mm. or rather I would say that the last one is probably the hardest, but <laughs> otherwise mm. it's sort of, it's an up and down um, mm. experience to play them all. But uh, it's, uh, at least for Baroque cello playing, it's, it's very rewarding music to play. And uh, they have, uh, each each Caprice has, has their own um, unique technical challenge, right. so to speak. So yeah. Some of them may appear very simple, but mm. once you get into the nitty-gritty of it and trying to make a balanced, well-sounding performance, it can be uh, quite challenging. I, you can really notice that he was he was a, primarily a cellist. Mm. I hope I'm right in that he was a cellist. I, <laughs> I, want, I wish to remember that he was, yeah. <laughs> that he was a cellist. So it's a little like the Piatic Priestess. Yeah, although not nearly as difficult, I would say, as the okay. Caprices. But uh, they are written for another era, and yeah. for another, for basically another instrument, I would say. Yeah. yeah. How many different cellos do you have? I have... Uh, so one could maybe say that besides being a producer, musician, and occasional arranger and music engraver, I also collect instruments. Mm. <laughs> um, so that's... And that's sort of... Uh, uh, that's a large part of my interest in music overall. I have uh, I have a very nerdy disposition and a great interest in uh, in string instruments overall and uh, in their construction and the and the variant different variants and stuff like that. So I have 
seven cellos at the moment. Mm. Um, I think I have 14 violins, three violas, and just one double bass, <gasps> which pains me, but <laughs> uh, I'm going to buy a new double bass soon because it's uh -huh. quite crappy. Do you have uh, a, a Baroque cello? Yes, I have Baroque cello. Uh -huh. uh, and I have a cello that's more set up in the uh, classical tradition. So it's a sort of um, midway between the, the modern and, uh, and the Baroque. Mm. And I have th three modern cellos and one electric cello. And the carbon fiber cello. And my carbon fiber cello, yes. Yeah. The very same that you have. Yes, yes. <laughs> the Lewis and Clark, which is my main performance instrument and has been ever since I bought it in 2007. Why, why is that? Well, I, I was very intrigued by them mm -hmm. uh, from when I first heard about them. I think it was in late high school, it must have been 2004. I made, maybe I saw an ad online or in a... In a music uh, magazine or something like that and I was very intrigued uh, because I had an extremely uh, temperamental old Danish cello uh, that cracked at least once a year somewhere mm. on the body and, and it's, uh, in the summer it sounded glorious uh, but it was almost impossible to play because the oh. string height elevated like three four millimeters oh, it was really? incredible uh, because of the humidity? Yeah. Like what exactly the, happens? The the fingerboard sinks? No, it's, it's the... more the, the belly of the of the instrument uh, swells ah. from the humidity. The yeah. The the pine wood it, it absorbs humidity from the air. Yeah. So and then it swells. So it's uh, it uh, bulges up and, and the string height uh, goes up. And that's not yeah. uncommon, but it was extreme on this cello. Okay. Uh, it could uh, it could differ by several millimeters, which is it doesn't sound like a lot for all of you out there who uh, who maybe don't play the cello, but it's a lot. Yeah, Every yeah. half millimeter <laughs> makes an enormous difference in playability. Uh. But it sounded glorious in the summer, and in the winter it became much more playable, but the sound just died. Um, so I was more than. Uh, fed up with that instrument and then I learned of these carbon fiber instruments which had only been uh, produced for a couple of years in the US uh, made by an uh, by cellist and inventor Louis uh, Leguia in Boston mm. Massachusetts and um, he's a, a fabulous cellist uh, he played in the Boston Symphony for decades uh, and around the the shift of the millennium he he invented this carbon fiber cello and uh, I was so intrigued, in fact, that I, I uh, contacted the, the company, Lewis and & Clark, and uh, they told me that there was a cellist in the Royal Philharmonic in Stockholm that had uh, one of these instruments, and uh, mm. so I came in contact with her, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Olsson, and uh, she lent me her cello a couple of times, and I decided to, uh, to buy one, and so mm. I travelled in, what well, must have been February 2007, 2007. we travelled to Boston. And uh, I tried out maybe twenty of them. In their, I mean, this is a family business, so it was at their house in Milton outside uh, Boston, and uh, it was a lovely experience. And I tried out s several of them. And considering that they are, they are made in in molds, basically They're, they are molded in in the same hmm. uh, in the same mold. It, it's fascinating how much they they differed from each other. Ah. Oh, really? Um, these all sort of have this same basic mm. sound 
world, but they differed a lot in how loud they were and how open mm. they were. So some cello, some cellos just screamed <laughs> as soon mm. as you put the bow to the strings, and some other cellos were very discreet and, and warm and uh, more deep. And I chose one that I think was roughly in between okay. the two. I just assumed they would all sound the same. I mean, they sound uh, more the same than a wooden cello from one maker from, uh, and from another maker. Of course, mm. they do. They have the same sort of profile. But it was in, in, in volume and in um, openness they, oh. they differed quite okay. more than I would have expected, at least. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, um, I got uh, the midway, the lagom. Mm. The long one, and it's been my uh, primary instrument ever since. Although I had this nerdy interest, so I, uh, I've acquired quite a few yeah. other instruments, and I've bought and sold dozens of instruments uh, mm. since, just um, out of interest, really. Okay. Huh. I wish I was more nerdy on the topic. I will sometimes have students ask me where to find the cello, and yeah. I, uh, it can be an adventure. Yeah. I, I've bought and sold a lot uh, online, and I've... Uh, scoured online auctions and stuff like that mm. and uh, found some some really some really good deals yeah. <laughs> over the years it's been uh, it's been fun maybe you need a day job to have some capital to start with i think that helps <laughs> i think that helps certainly certainly because um, it, it would be really nice if i had the money to to look for some decent cellos in you know not the most expensive you know for some students that i then could sell when uh, students would be interested, but yeah, that just seems like uh, a little utopian for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it can be hard to uh, to start. I mean, it's not a business for me really. I, I don't have a company or anything yeah. associated with this, so I don't have a company at all. But um, of course, it, it um, especially in these last uh, couple of years, having a monthly salary has mm. been something I really treasure. <laughs> yeah. So um, I consider myself very fortunate to have been, uh, in a- mm. been able to indulge in this, uh, this keen interest of mine. Yeah. And you don't even have to do your own taxes? No, we don't. Oh, my God. Uh, Amazing. We pay a lot of them, but we don't <laughs> have to... Uh, we, at least we don't have to administer them and uh, uh-huh. manage everything. So that's, that's always something. Yeah. Wow. Um... Do you still have a dream of being a soloist no. with a certain piece? You know, if there's like just one piece you really want to play with an orchestra in your lifetime? Oh. Well, yes, of course. That, uh, I mean, if I would make a vision board or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> or a... Um, what do you call these lists that people make? Like bucket lists? Bucket lists, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, certainly there are works that I would love to perform. Mm. Um, <laughs> 
I, I suppose the, the primary would be, uh, I've always been a, an enormous fan of uh, the American composer Philip Glass. He's ah, always been one yeah. of my uh, great inspirations, not, not as a composer, I, I've composed very little and it's not very good. I'm much better at arranging than composing. But he has been an enormous influence otherwise musically for me. Um, and his first cello concerto is, I still regard it as one of the major works for cello and orchestra uh, of the 20th century. It's just, it's a fabulous, fabulous piece of music. Mm. I have to admit, mm. I don't know it. I haven't mm. listened there to it. There are at least a couple of uh, really good recordings. The first one was made by Julian Lloyd Webber yeah. in the early 2000s, I think. Mm. Um, and it was dedicated to him, it was written for him uh, originally. And uh, there's a second recording that I like better with uh, the American cellist Wendy Sutter. That is, uh, mm. it's just, uh, it's, just a it's a very powerful and energetic and also mournful work. It's uh, just, it's extraordinary. I, I consider it one of the, the ex most extraordinary cello concertos I've written, but I mean, I'm a fan of Philip Glass, mm. so uh, yeah. I'm biased. <laughs> I yeah. forgot. Okay. He has written a lot of uh, nice solo cello music as well. Uh, oh yeah. Not not always the most uh, intuitively written music. I mean, he's he's a pianist <laughs> uh, himself, mm. uh, but it's it's gorgeous music mm. and uh, well worth looking into. I think. Mm. Maybe I can borrow some sheet music from you at some point. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> to look into it. I never played Philip Glass, but I can actually play the opening from Glassworks on the piano. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fine work. That's I mean, gorgeous. His, his, piano, his piano music is just... Um, it's, a, it's a different world, of course. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's something about these Americans, about this different world, something quite exotic about it. Yes, in a, in a way, I, I agree with that. It's um, For me, his music especially conveys... Um, it's a sort of distillation of the, of the modern world in a, in a musical language. It's, mm. um, uh, for me, it's always like a, a reflection of the current times and, and very fitting. And also, often... I mean, it's not always easy to listen to but it's easy to understand some mm. of the music can be very provocative in, especially in his earlier works in his more repetitive works and I mean he was considered minimalist for a long time now he's I guess maybe more of a neo-romantic composer or something mm. like that or neoclassical or whatever they call it now but um, it's always easy to grapple the music while still being highly affected by it, mm. I think. So that has always inspired me a lot. I, I think um, both in in uh, performance and in arranging. I mean, that concerto is not often performed no. live. So not at all. Would you say it could be an idea? You know, if you learn it and then and then try to approach. pitch it to a concert hall yeah <laughs> that would probably be impossible yeah you think so yes I because think so. i i have a dream as well with a which nitke's second cello concerto is which is mm. also like very uh, hardly ever played i yeah. think and i for some strange reason 
loved the piece and I played it during my studies. I uh, performed it with a pianist, okay. actually. And even okay. though it's 10 years ago, it's, I think, my like greatest achievement. Or it's like the thing I'm the most proud of. And, and I still have this dream of playing it with an orchestra. And I'm thinking, how can I do that? So these days, since I have the time, I'm actually... Uh, re, uh, I mean, learning it again because I'm thinking the first step to make that dream come true is to actually be able to play it uh, quite confidently, and then I wouldn't know exactly where to go next. But I know that one of the, I mean, I'm only aware of three recordings that have been done of this concerto, and one of them is to left to then. Swedish child. Yeah, I was just going to say that's probably the, the only one I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> I, think. I was thinking, you know, when I when I can play it well again, to contact him uh, for a lesson on it since he has recorded it, and so that he knows someone exists who actually like this piece and play this piece. I don't know. I wouldn't even know how to proceed Tore in that. Yeah. If you hear this. Contact her. Oh, <laughs> contact Magnil. I will probably <laughs> contact you first. But there's a Schnittke yeah. emergency. Yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, if he is then booked to perform this concerto and he would uh, get ill, yeah. you know, there there's wouldn't be there wouldn't be many cellists who could stand in quickly for that type of concerto. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that when it comes to your dream of playing the glass? Of like, do you want it to actually happen? How how would it happen? Oh God, I, I mean, this is something I've probably not even <laughs> thought about in, in quite a while. But it's, uh, it's just one of those works that, that would be absolutely yeah. lovely to, to perform. But um, Re Revisiting teenage years now. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fully-fledged, like, virtuoso soloist performer generally, so it would be a monumental task for me to do something mm. like that. Perhaps not as monumental as if I was to play like the Dvorak or uh, the Elga or some of the other like really high octane cello concertos. <laughs> I mean, um, but it it certainly has its its uh, technical challenges. But I I, I don't know how, no, no. how that would even come okay. about. Maybe with an aperture orchestra or something like that, who would be yeah. more willing to do experimental productions. Yeah. We'll yeah. see if I ever, <laughs> if I ever <laughs> rekindle that, <laughs> that part. Yes, I've even also been thinking, because Schnittke was born in 1934, so I'm thinking in 2034, there will be yeah. places who want to celebrate. He Certainly. would have turned 100 years. Certainly. And uh, I mean, he's <laughs> definitely one of the most underperformed 20th century composers, I think, considering how what a big name Schnittke is. I mean, it's still highly regarded name in, in the in the business so yeah. there should definitely be more room more room <laughs> for Schnittke and Philip Glass although he's perhaps not underperformed generally I think his music mm. uh, overall is quite commonly performed yeah yeah not the cello concerto unfortunately no
what does it mean for you to be a musician? To be a musician... Oh God, what a big question. Well, for me, ever since I first put a bow to the strings, it's been a mode of expression for me. Um, expressivity has always been the top priority in my playing. Sometimes to the detriment of other important aspects <laughs> of, of cello playing. Um, but always appreciated by the audience. So um, uh, I've always found that to be the most important part to express something of my personality, of my ideal sound world, if I am able to convey it. For me, playing music is about expressing something within yourself, using something that comes from within someone else, of course, if you, as long as you're not playing your own music. Um, but it's, uh, I think that's what, that's, that is what makes music such a special art form, that it's uh, always a combination of the, the performer and the, the composer. Mm. In that regard, it's a, uh, that's what separates it from, from uh, sculpture or painting or stuff like that. There you only have the, the artist and the receiver. I mean, it's more, uh, more closely related to theatre in that way. It's, mm -hmm. One actor can make a significant alteration to a role without making any changes to the words compared to another actor that has done the exact same role in the exact same mm. setting, even. And that is how you, I think you communicate something from within yourself. It sounds very cliché now that I put <laughs> words to it, but I mean, clichés are clichés for a reason. Yeah. It is. They're often true. Um, but I don't really have a, a technical technical focus in my music making. I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm seldom impressed by virtuoso feats of, uh, of the most difficult music that is almost impossible to listen to. Mm. Um, like, like what? Like Paganini. <laughs> <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with many of these composers, oh, right. like Piatti and Paganini okay. and uh, Isai. And, uh, I, I was Paganini. expecting you to say Brian Furnihoe or something, Sanakis, but uh, I guess they well, can all... I mean, yes, of course, that is also very... It's very technically challenging music, but it's not, it's not bravura music. I mean, mm. if you're playing Nomos Alpha by Senakis or something like that, it's not like, at least for me, it's not about impressing the audience with your technical abilities, mm. even though it's a ridiculously hard music to play. Um, and I mean, it's the same for the, the Bach suites. They're not supposed to sound difficult when you play mm. them. And they're not supposed to impress the audience with, uh, with your virtuosity. Mm. Um, like the Paganini Caprices, they are specifically <laughs> designed to impress. Right. And I, I certainly, I, um, I find that, it, it, of course, that has its place on, on the stage. I, I don't say anything about that, but it doesn't impress me as much as a really heartfelt, emotive performance mm. of something that could be much more simple or equally complex, but mm. to the chagrin of uh, 
many of my teachers, I've always uh, <laughs> been a, a very emotive and emotive sort of word, uh, expressive player more than a technical one. But I've never been a teacher myself, so <laughs> no. I have a I have no way to convey that onwards more than performing on stage. Yeah. And how is it looking for you now uh, in the foreseeable future? What are you working on? Uh, now, primarily, I'm continuing working as a as a producer for for Caprice Records, uh, which is great fun, and uh, I uh, adore my colleagues. and uh, And otherwise, I think it's about uh, slowly restarting the uh, freelance side of things after the pandemic. Mm. It's been not entirely dormant. I've done uh, mm. some stuff, some studio gigs and TV TV performances. But it just as it's been for everyone else, it's. Uh, Mostly about uh, rekindling that fire mm. and uh, trying to get it going, and uh, but I, I think uh, it'll work out. Yes, certainly. I hope to do more, more arranging. I've done some uh, some very very f- fun and uh, engaging uh, arranging uh, gigs in the last few years, and uh, I hope to do much more of that. Yeah. More of that, please. Yeah. This is a call out. And I want to do more string arranging. <laughs> Then you can also make a website. I really, really should. Yeah. That is something I've been thinking about the last decade, that I really should have a website that sort of collects everything I've done. Yeah. Because I've, I've done a lot, but not not everything has um, gotten a, a lot of traction in, in commercially. Uh, but uh, I think there are, there is enough material to, to at least make something rudimentary about myself. Yes. Although I will not start my own company, that is not <laughs> <laughs> that's not on my list of priorities. Mm. So it's possible to sell things without having one's own company. Is there a way outside of? Yes, I basically use a billing service um, currently, and for the last couple of years, I use Freelance Finance. Okay. Which is yeah. just a basic. I think it's called a billing service in English. It's by you. They're your accountant, kind of. Well, it's a, it's a web service. You mm. you make uh, an invoice via their web service, and they send it out, and they uh, handle all the administration and, uh, mm. and the payments, and it, you get the money as a uh, as a salary, basically. Oh, and they take okay. some uh, fee in the yeah uh, as a as the middleman, and it's been. It's been very effective for for me. Mm. Right. I'm a little confused. So uh, uh, what are the benefits of doing it that way rather than having a company and I don't know. Well, there are benefits and there are drawbacks, certainly. Mm. Um, The greatest benefit is all the administration that I don't have to do. Mm. Um, If you have your own firm, there is so much uh, tax administration and... uh, reporting and uh, bookkeeping and stuff like that um, that I can just ignore. Mm. Um, the main drawback is the sales tax. Uh, oh. Live performances are tax-free okay. in, in Sweden. And as if you have your own firm, as oh. long as you have your own firm, oh, they okay. are. Uh, I, however, have to pay sales tax on, uh, right. on uh, performing mm. live. Okay. As I don't have my own company. You have to have an, an artist company. Right. An artist firm. Whatever it's called. Ooh, okay. So, and that's a whole that's a whole bag of worms, but it that yes. is, it it hasn't uh, 
uh, made it worth it for me with all the hassle and all the uh, mm. other financial uh, implications of starting your own firm. So, mm. um, because I don't do it nearly enough to make a living of it mm. yet, because I have my, <laughs> mm. my beloved day job. Um, yeah. So I just haven't prioritized it. God, I don't have the brains for the, all of those things. I will go with the first and best solution that comes to me and I will go from there. I don't have the energy to you know, research what's the best for me in any way. It's, yeah, probably me neither. Uh, <laughs> really, I mean, there are, I mean, there are different types of firms you can start and there are, mm. there are so many rules and regulations around all of that. I just feel like, yeah. no. Yeah. I have enough rules <laughs> and regulations as it is. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and uh, answer questions. It's been my pleasure. It's uh, really great for me living here, trying to get an idea of uh, how musicians here are dealing with life. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I can imagine it's a very mixed bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, looking forward to continuing. Uh, Checking out, you know, this city. How long have you been here? I've been here three and a half years. Okay. Uh, but then there were a couple of pandemic years. Yeah. And before that, I wasn't even uh, trying to be a cellist because I also wanted the comfortable thing. So I was, I mean, to me, that meant uh, cleaning flats. Yeah. <laughs> because I love cleaning and that, yeah, it was a steady income. And I didn't have to think about anything else. So then I could have my cello playing as my own thing, not having to combine cello playing with economy, which to me just seemed like a, a match I didn't want to make. Uh, but then recently I've wanted to do it anyway <laughs> to get into it. So that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, I think this is a very creative way of jumpstarting it. Mm. I mean making this kind of podcast to learn from uh, so many different people. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's genius. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's it's uh, incredibly thrilling to do, actually. I recommend it. Yeah, uh, I can it's imagine. a lot of fun. We have, we have started <laughs> making podcasts at my, uh, at my day job, which I still yeah. call my day job. It's, it's, my, it's my job. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just uh, released uh, the first uh, uh, season of uh, Caprice Music Pod, oh. uh, which is, um, I think it's four or five episodes in uh, by now, mm. during uh, this recording at least. It's it's very much fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a new, certainly a new way of doing things. And you're involved with uh, that, the production of it? Not not so much. Mostly on the, mostly on, on the sidelines. Uh, yeah. we have uh, employed a production company, and we have. Uh, uh, different people uh, in different seasons uh, doing the program uh, the mm, Show hosts. The show hosts, yes. Maybe. We have different show hosts for each season. Um, but at least we have two seasons planned. Mm. One is uh, releasing currently and the second one is coming this fall, 2022. Mm. Uh, and after that there will probably be more. Mm. It's been well received so far. Thanks for listening. 
If you need a string arrangement or a soloist to play Cello Concerto Number no. 1 by Philip Glass, see the show notes for links to where to get in touch with Eric. And thanks again for joining me on this exploration of musicians' experiences. Good luck on your journey and take care.